committee, I welcome you with open arms. Is that so? How late do you stay open? You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. I hope they are watching. They'll see. They'll see and they'll know. And they'll say, why she wouldn't even harm a fly. What's up, everybody? You're listening to NoCo Cinema here on WGM+. Plus. We are your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago. I am Tom Hush. And I'm Connor Cornelius. And as always, we are excited to be here back with you for another week of Chicago Film Talk. Uh, coming up a little bit later in the program, we're talking to producer Colleen Griffin about her new film, An Acceptable Loss. Uh, right now, it's it's streaming on Amazon. You gotta pay, you gotta pay for it. You gotta rent it, yep. which you probably should. It's like it's like six dollars. Yeah, it's it's an extremely solid watch. Extremely solid watch. Jamie Lee Curtis is in it for God's sake. Jamie Lee Curtis, Tika Sumter, uh, directed by her husband Joe Chappelle, um, and it's also going to be playing at the Midwest Independent Film Festival this Tuesday. Um, you're hearing it. You're hearing this on Monday. So tomorrow at the first Tuesdays, it's going to be playing. Uh, that's your opportunity to see it, have a little fun, stick around for uh, some talks, all that kind of stuff. Uh, shout out to our friend Amy Guth, executive director of the Midwest Independent Film Festival. Also, something a little housekeeping here. Want to get out of the way? Um, we are going to be at the Gene Siskel Film Center Friday, February eighth. We're going to be presenting. Rendezvous in Chicago, one of my favorite uh, independent films of last year. Or the Chicago premiere. The Chicago premiere. This is the first night. They're going to do a whole run. And honestly, this is the crazy part, is that you can watch this movie four times, and you're going to get four different conversations, because we're just doing night one. That's yeah. just that's just the opener. We've got so much more coming up. Uh, I know, I believe Matt Fagerholm from RogerEbert.com, who uh, we're, we know we, we're friends with, uh, he hasn't been on the show yet. No. He's next. He's up. He's, He's a, yeah. The email is forthcoming, Matt. We're coming for you, Matt. Matt Fagerholm, <laughs> RogerEber.com. Uh, Check that inbox. Somewhere. And your junk mail. For some reason, we <laughs> Pro- have probably junk mail. Probably a junk mail. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, there's, there's going to be different uh, members of the cast and crew each night. So, realistically, you could go to this and watch it four different times. You get four completely different conversations out of, uh, out of it. So, and if you've seen that movie, you know that that's a good way to go about it absolutely there's so many facets to it so uh again we'll be there on the 8th of of february so check that out but if you can't make it you've got three more opportunities to watch it over at the gene siskel uh film center here in downtown chicago uh we it's one of our favorite theaters nope it's a great place to go see go see a film uh but we gotta do some you know here we go we do, yep. we talk to a lot of chicago filmmakers and we do comment on the film news of the week all that kind of stuff and there's a lot to comment on but uh sometimes we gotta throw ourselves a bone filtering in i mean it's impossible to not just a little bit of background here on our very first episode a little bit over a year ago there was uh it was me and it was you and it was jake s weisman jake s weisman and in this motley crew, sort of situated in the center of on the table was one thing. Mine. It was a book. It was a book, and it was it Written was by my... Frank Herbert in the sixties. Oh yeah, yeah. And it's called Dune. 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 We're talking Dune. Yeah. Ooh, riding those levels, baby. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I remember I was in the midst of reading Dune for the first time, and uh, I mean you were. 
you were all about it. Yeah. And uh, it's funny because Dune, dis, you know, both being a classic of sci-fi literature and uh, also having a really interesting film history. Because in 1984, I want to say, a uh, film adaptation came out directed by David Lynch, of all right. people. Coming, coming hot off the Elephant Man, which, I mean, interesting choice of director. And, I mean, uh, if you – I actually read a great book. It was Lynch on Lynch, which was just conversations with David Lynch talking about his entire film career up to that point. Uh, the chapter on Dune is really fascinating. Yeah. And I suggest that you all read it if you want some context. But it came out – it was supposed to be, like, such a big deal. I want to say it was produced by Dino De Laurentiis. Uh, who at the time was a very big deal, starring Kyle MacLachlan, our boy, yeah. Twin Peaks. Come on. Damn fine couple The mayor coffee. from Portlandia, <laughs> <laughs> as he's known, as he's most successful. I mean, let's known. just, yeah. Uh, I mean, even Brad, Brad Dorif, you know him. Um, hasn't hasn't uh, Lynch kind of expressed some regret about the outcome of Dune? Yeah, I mean, because he, he really kind of, it was a tough shoot. And, right. I mean, we could do a whole conversation about just that chapter of David Lynch's career yeah. working on Dune. Um, just want to jump in a couple more big names. Uh, Jack Nance from Eraserhead. Yep. Patrick Stewart. Sting. Sting as Fade Rautha. Yeah. As the th- leather thong clad... <laughs> wearing <laughs> fade ralph uh max van Sydow. you know max van Sydow from from yeah you do yeah from many ingmar bergman films as as, as many among, a bergman uh sean young from blade runner really well, yeah she's, she's she rachel Roy? oh she, her sean sean young rachel from blade runner Oh, really? Her eyes were green. Her eyes were green. <laughs> you son of a bitch. <laughs> she was Johnny. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so uh, this is supposed to be a big deal. Uh, ended up not being a very big deal at all. Uh, it was, I mean, it has its fans. It yeah. has its fans. But it was almost well more well-known for being a... Uh, disaster. <laughs> disaster, yeah. And as I, as I mentioned, it was executive produced, uncredited by Dino De Laurentiis. Um, music by Toto. <laughs> what the fuck were you thinking, David Lynch? What the fuck hey, were you hey, thinking? They just brought him on. They were just like, you're an interesting filmmaker. Let's see you make Dune. Uh, in addition to that, there was Alejandro Jodorowsky's yep. version of Dune. That was never was made. Never made. In purg- in storyboard purgatory, yeah, until the end of time, yeah, and uh, that was going to be wild. And I mean, there, there's literally a whole document, uh, a whole documentary about that. It. Documentary is awesome, by the really way. Really good documentary about. If you want to learn more about the creative process, just watch Jodorowsky's Dune, uh, the documentary, not the actual Dune. Because but can't watch it. but luckily, hmm. as announced, uh, you know, when we started the show, I think it was announced that um, Denis Villeneuve, mm-hmm. who you yeah. know from Arrival. Sicario, Blade, Blade Runner, Runner twenty forty nine, nice, nailed it. <laughs> um, and he, I mean, if you know, if you've been following Villeneuve's career, I mean, you can see that he handles science fiction in a very arresting, um, intimate way. Yeah, he's that's kind of his thing. He's really a, sci- a really big sci fi nerd. Um, I mean, granted, I mean, one of the movies that he's most well known for is Sicario, right? Not sci fi at all, but he's uh, Arrival is under his belt. Enemy is a sci-fi movie yep um blade runner 
he's got he's got a thing for it he's got an interesting thing for it so uh it was announced that denis villeneuve was going to take over and do a ad- a new adaptation of dune and there's been a lot of recent news that i didn't really know how many dune fans were out there right i i mean i knew it was many people at red dune when they were younger or you know and really liked the book but uh the hardcore dune fan base is out there uh these Arakeen spice boys yes are just been, <laughs> been, been waiting for to pull out their still suits from their closet because yeah. i mean it's it's one of those things like like we were talking about david lynch's dune and everything i mean it's it's a really difficult story to to bring to a satisfactory light i think yeah and i would describe dune if you haven't read it as like basically game of thrones in space and that's like very reductive but more or less the point it's all about politics yep and if you like game of thrones if you're looking for something to read if you haven't already read dune fucking read dune it is it's like it is a saga it's like a psychedelic rock book (laughs) (laughs) in a lot of like it's like the the drugs that they end up doing and like the politics behind the use of it it all all the entire galactic economy centers around an addictive drug that makes you see into the future it's fucking nuts those (laughs) words coming out of my those words coming out of my mouth is it's unbelievable and for for denis villeneuve to be helming this i i I liked every single one of his movies. I can't imagine that he's going to not do its service. And something that he said about it for all of the other uh, science fiction fans out there, he kind of roasted the entire uh, man-child Star Wars fan base when he said, Dune is going to be like Star Wars for adults. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but it really is. It really, if That's one way to put it. Uh, because it is so focused on very like very heady themes of politics of power of environmentalism yeah. is a big part of what that book is about so uh denis villeneuve is going to take it on i think really the great thing is the casting here this guy's literally pulling out all the stops yeah he's he's absolutely going for it let me just Brace run down yourself. the list here uh this is there's there's some that are rumored some that are confirmed um we're just gonna let's just start with the confirmed let's start with the confirmed all right, main character Paul Atreides, Muad'Dib, Muad'Dib, my boy, the prophet, the prophet himself, the desert mouse, the young lord, the young lord, the leader of the the leader of the Atreides, Khan Lee, yes, the heir, Timothy Chalamet. That's my beautiful boy, Timothy Chalamet, coming in. Wow, as Paul. pretty good, pretty good choice. I think that's that's going to be interesting. And because I think he's got a the, he's got a McLaughlin esque sure like quality to him. And the way that they're doing this movie, if I'm not mistaken, because there are time jumps in this book, it's separated into three sections. Yeah, and they're splitting that into two movies. So I think that probably smart. I don't know if they'll recast Timothy Chalamet in the because at the end because of the time jump when he is actually an adult. Yeah, but I think that him being able to play the the younger version of Paul. Before the Gam Jabbar, yes. we're talking about. Before the Kwisatz Haderach, we're talking Timothy Chalmay. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm guessing they're going to keep him the same. Um, they're going to just have to handle the time jump a little bit differently. I yeah. mean, that's the thing about adaptation is that you have to take some liberties with it because uh unfortunately you can't age him like a certain number of years no or you could just wait you just wait to actually make that portion of the movie um rebecca ferguson lady jessica oscar isaac 
the duke as the duke leto dude that's a that's a pretty inspired choice dude i was worried that it was going to be jared leto just for like the in the oh, i would have laughed so hard i actually would have been on i would have been on board with i would have been on board with it i i would have watched it but oscar oscar I just, he's my he's boy. better yeah uh dave batista as the beast raven oh my god and he is gonna be awesome he's i am so impressed by his ascension <laughs> to like kino he's like, been the best he's like the best thing in every scene that i that you watch him in like, guardians of the galaxy yeah the op- 2049 yeah the opening of 24 he was the only redeeming part of specter for me honestly i loved watching him inspector i still haven't seen that actually uh you're not missing much yeah uh but yeah he really takes himself very seriously as an actor and good i'm glad you know i explore that part of your career uh recently confirmed javier bardem stillgar oh leader of the god f- uh the a certain tr- what's the word Sight? The siege siege tabor siege Fremen. tabor yeah uh some of the natives yeah. of the planet iraq and a central character in all of the book if in all the dune books if he ends up going on to the second and third Absolutely. Or films or books. Uh, Stellan Skarsgård is the Baron Harkonnen, the big baddie. The yeah, and look up pictures of the David Lynch Dune version of that because you're gonna you're gonna be seeing some boils, you're gonna be seeing some oozy shit coming out of this guy's face. It's gonna be yeah. grotesque. And then uh, Charlotte Rampling as uh, Reverend Mother Moyam or Mo- Moyhim. Yeah, it's hard. Moam. I don't um, know, but uh, you know, leader of the uh, of the Bene, Bene Gesserit, the fucking space witches <laughs> who are who are like engineering the entire universe to their will. It's fucking crazy. It's awesome. <laughs> I I just want to get across to everybody listening <laughs> right now how much we it's, love dude. It's <laughs> so hard to it's so hard to talk about it in like a measured way when you feel so strongly about it. You know, I think it's because let's it's. <laughs> It's nuts. It's a nuts story, and I understand if people aren't or like wouldn't give a shit about it, right? Sure. But there's a depth of imagination there from Brian from uh, Frank Herbert that is, if you aren't interested even in the movie, just like pick up the book in a bookstore and read a couple of pages because that guy's writing is, I, I don't know, it's it's inspiring, and I feel like I haven't read somebody write like that before yeah I don't know. and for such a heady book yes it's 800 pages which is if i'm not mistaken the the length of the first game of thrones book um it's written in a way that is still compelling that sometimes this level of science fiction world building can be like a slog like honestly one of my favorite sci-fi books of all time is solaris sure and um that is some very hard sci-fi that is not dune um solaris is very much uh focused on like process and like explaining every piece of machinery all that kind of stuff and being very very like strict with it and it can be a slog to read if you don't value that that kind of thing i mean that exactly becomes a slog but dune dune still touches on like it really world builds and even with the david lynch film um he does a pretty good job of really trying to get across that this is a big world that they're dealing with we're talking about interplanetary just like economics yeah and economic it takes, warfare it takes something that should be like really boring and makes it super interesting if you describe events in this book like we were doing earlier i mean it sounds sounds do it sounds batshit but the 
the way that he writes it is far more compelling than it frankly has any right to be so we're super excited for this i'm guessing we're looking at like 2020 2021 yeah so, uh, so it's really down the pipeline but take your time denny i know you're a long time listener but just take your time you're excited <laughs> you're excited we get it but and give us the four hour cut don't god don't fuck with me okay, on this 2049 well, shit let's where you're not just like do blade runner now we can't do blade runner but it's so intertwined because yeah. it's again he's adapting a beloved sci-fi property and he's got to put a mark on it and my only worry is that people are not really going to go see dune because it's got a little bit of the same problem as 2049 where and maybe less so because you're basically not going to enjoy 2049 if you haven't seen the original blade runner right it's like, a niche it's very niche uh, Dune is asking you to basically jump headfirst into this crazy world where people like literally, as you said, do drugs so they can see into the fucking future. <laughs> like that's it's a very it's very of its time in that sense where it takes a lot of risks where people are looking for sci-fi that is prob- probably should be more like Blade Runner, which is v- kind of grounded, has a sense of reality to it, whereas Dune is not that. Dune is way out there. And I, I compared it to Game of Thrones earlier, but Game of Thrones is like very situated in like historical medieval fantasy right granted there are dragons but that's like really the only there's like one of the few there's hardly any real imaginative world building in game of thrones in my by my estimation if we're talking about dune and game of thrones in the same conversation it's like no it's it's less it's less trippy it's very grounded in reality and i think that's the key to a lot of game of thrones success is that even if you're not super on board with fantasy elements like dragons or magic or things of that nature you're still brought in by the groundedness of like yeah they're in a castle castles exist like these are they're it's like based on real kind of history with a little bit of extra shit thrown in and it's really not even introduced until much later on once you've got the grounding in the world dune kind of does that but it also goes right off the bat if you read the book like crazy shit's happening like immediately almost immediately yeah and it requires a certain level of a mat as you said imagination like you it's gonna have to recapture people's almost childlike wonder yeah. at like things that are impossible well you pick up the book and you're immediately presented with all of these terms that you have no ability unless you fucking studied the glossary ahead of time i mean there are you're getting words like gum jabbar you're getting quisa Tatarak, you're getting Arrakis and Caladan and Secular Secundus. It's yeah. like none of this shit makes sense, and he doesn't coddle you. And he treats as as a reader. I appreciated this. It's sort of like if you're watching a kids movie that doesn't treat its audience like they're fucking idiots. Yeah, it's like you re you are in this world and you're along for the ride. Yeah, and open you're gonna figure up. and open yourselves up and you're gonna figure it out and it's gonna be that much more of a rewarding experience by the end. Yeah, I'm serious. If if this is handled. Uh, well, and I think a lot of it's going to fall in the marketing, um, as a lot yeah. of film does. I mean, there's a lot of great movies over the last uh, few years that people complain about because they're just like, oh, this isn't the movie I thought I was coming to watch. Right. Um, and hopefully this is a movie that markets well and knows what its messaging is. I think Blade Runner fell a little bit victim to that where people are just like, I don't know what the fuck this movie is. Like, what is Blade Runner? Even though Blade Runner is arguably one of the most influ- is 
one of, if not the most influential sci-fi work next to maybe Dune. Yeah. Um, because Blade Runner like defined what sci- helped define what cyberpunk looked like and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, gave a lot to cinema in general, a certain aesthetic that people have recreated, copied and all that kind of stuff it, it, as a good thing. It's I in mean, the library of Congress archive as a yeah. culturally important piece of art. And yet it was significant when, when it came out. Yeah. So it's one of those things. I'm really nervous because Blade Runner 2049 did not do particularly well in the box office, despite its critical success. It had critics loved Blade Runner 2049. They thought it was great. So I want Denis to to succeed, but we'll just have to see how this one plays out. Obviously, the hardcore fans are going to go see it, but it's not us that they're worried about necessarily because of course we're going to go see it. Of course, we're going to see it whether or not it's good. We're white dudes <laughs> getting thrown a fucking sci-fi bone it's ridiculous. yeah it's ridiculous uh before we go on to our conversation with uh colleen um would this have worked more as a netflix series i think that that's a really interesting question that's a question that we have to ask ourselves and and full disclosure i'm kind of stealing this from a uh a podcast called the rewatchables oh. which is one of my favorite film podcasts and uh it's one of the questions that they ask themselves is would this movie work as a netflix series and i think that's an incredibly like modern question to ask because so many things are just like well i don't know if we want to put all the all the chips in making this a movie right two two three hour experience what if we make this a bingeable fucking tv show that anybody can watch at home and then just like tweet about and talk about how they're so obsessed with it i mean the question regardless of you know ignoring the format and the episode format or whatever i mean what you're talking about is are we going to get four hours in this world or are we going to get 12 you know that's what you get when you get that long list of episodes so of course with a book that's as dense as dune it probably make it probably would have made more sense frankly for in terms of adapting this book into uh, for the screen i think it would have made more sense for it to be in a in a miniseries but To say that you know it won't, you won't be able to capture the the story and the scope of everything. I don't think that that's fair necessarily. Yeah, we'll just. I guess we'll just have to see. Um, when they said we were doing it as a movie, I'm like, we've tried, and they have tried it as a television series as well. Sci-fi did it as a t as like a mini series. Right. So I guess maybe format is not the question. It's more of who are we talking, who are we dealing with? How much is the studio going to get involved? How much are they going to try to, and maybe this is a pretentious way to put it, but how much are they going to dumb it down so that it has a broad audience? Obviously you want to find some sort of middle ground. Cause if you just make this four hour fucking epic for people who already love the book, it's not going to be a success. No. It's going to be a waste of a few, you know, tens of millions of dollars and a lot of, uh, talent. If it just becomes a cult classic, cult classics are great. I love cult classics, but I'd rather see this movie succeed. I want to see Denis Villeneuve just be given bigger and bigger budgets. Yep. Um, so as, as some dune boys, some Sandy boys, a couple of Sandy boys, a couple of, a couple Ar- of spice heads. Yeah. A couple of spice, spice posters, <laughs> couple of worm, couple of worm writers. Yeah, Don't sorry. tell them about keep the it, group. Keep it secret. Sorry. <laughs> uh, can, can, can we be honest? We are definitely part of a Dune meme group. We may or may not be a part of a <laughs> group whose sole existent purpose of their existence is to create sand-based memes. 
spice based Milan based memes. Shout out to our uh, our fellow spice <laughs> posters who may or might, may not actually listen to this show. We're out we're out there. Um, you look around. There on are a literally public bus. dozens of us. <laughs> Tens of thousands. So uh, the, all that aside, I think it's really interesting when um, a director takes another crack at a property. Yeah. I think, and I think Denis Villeneuve He's is proven the guy himself to do it. That. Yeah. yeah, I think he's the guy to do it. Um, so, with that said, all the do- we've got the Dune out. <sighs> we've released the Dune. Um, Clean out those still suit valves. <laughs> it's not over. It's never over. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is just this is, Beast I, Rabin was a false flag operation. Oh, Beast Rabin's God. Beast Rabin's uh, uh, <laughs> promotion a, to leader of Arrakis was a false flag operation. This is a, literally as esoteric as it gets mm-hmm. for us. Is when we go deep on Dune. Um, it's I'm been there read. since the beginning. It's been there since the beginning. Um, I'm definitely going to reread it. I think I'm just going to go on Amazon and just buy all the books. Yeah, at least all the ones that Frank wrote. I've got them for you if you want. If you want to borrow them, nice. you got to read up to God Emperor, and then you can stop. Or chapter house, I guess, but yeah. I yeah. prefer I would have I would have God liked Emperor to stop. fucking worm worm god. Wormy boys. Wormy boys. All right. Now uh, <laughs> all right, Jesus. Yeah, now that we've said all we can about <laughs> What do you mean? Dune. All right, all right, all right. Uh let's get into our conversation with producer, director, and writer Colleen Griffin. Uh she's got a new film out with her husband. It's called An Acceptable Loss, starring Tika Sumter and Jamie Lee Curtis. Let's go talk to her now. Uh, we're so lucky to be talking to a fantastic filmmaker and producer. Uh, there is a new film she's out here promoting. Uh, it's called An Acceptable Loss. It's distributed by IFC. You all know IFC, one of the biggest independent film distributors in the country. And it's actually directed by her husband, Joe Chappelle. Of course, I'm talking about filmmaker and producer Colleen Griffin. Uh, the film An Acceptable Loss follows Libby, and she's a teacher at a university. But four years ago, she was top aide to Vice President Rachel and was part of a total victory action. Rachel is now a U.S. president and worried about Libby keeping quiet. And Libby also has a little bit of a, a stalker, mm. uh, someone spying on her, following her around. So it's a little bit of a, I, I guess I would describe it as somewhat Tom Clancy-style thriller, heavy military themes, questions of power, yeah. questions of uh, you It's know, a political ethics. thriller without being really overtly political, I think. It's just, it's, it's digging into one of the things that you don't really talk about that much, like the choices that the people in power have to make when they are confronted with an opportunity for to further their you know their agenda i suppose yeah and frankly i found it incredibly gripping especially with fantastic performances by tika sumter as libby Mm -hmm. and none other than jamie lee curtis as rachel the sort of uh oligarch of power in this sense she is uh yeah the fantastic of the of this of the human suffering that (laughs) that takes place in this film that's a good way to put it and uh she is fierce in this movie i love seeing jamie lee as a villain i know i i was gonna say i feel i can't remember a time where she's behaved like that honestly i mean she's been a heel in in a lot of movies and even in like the new halloween she's got a little bit of that you know uh she's a little bit difficult but i don't know if i've ever seen her outright in like a villain role yes so again this is an acceptable loss right now in the studio we have colleen griffin producer of the film thank you so much for joining us colleen Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. So, An Acceptable Loss, uh, which is available now on Amazon, 
It's anywhere on iTunes. Films are streamed. Pretty much. It, you can get that rental right now. Watch it in the comfort of your own home. But you can also watch it coming up at the Midwest Independent Film Festival first Tuesdays. Uh, by the time you're hearing this, that's going to be tomorrow. So uh, you can still get your tickets. Go on out there. I think this is a movie that you'll really enjoy seeing in the theater. Uh, Colleen, tell us a little bit about getting an acceptable loss out there and distributed and people seeing it. Can I go back a little bit to like uh, just even the genesis of it? Yeah, yeah please. That's okay. yeah. So um, Joe Chappelle, my husband, is a producer, was a producer director on Chicago Fire, and sort of I think the hi- the winter hiatus of 2015, he started thinking we wanted to collaborate again. We had made a film in 1993 called Thieves Quartet, and we wanted to collaborate again. So he kind of came up with this idea. He had seen two Errol Morris documentaries. Uh, Fog of War and Known Unknown, and he kind of liked the idea of having um, two people, one like Donald Rumsfeld, who looks back at his engagement in war and is like, do it all over again, exactly the same. And then um, Robert McNamara, who looks back at Vietnam and is like, filled with regret, filled with remorse, wishes he had lived a different kind of life, I guess. Mm -hmm. And so Joe's sort of like, what if I put two characters kind of modeled on those guys on the same side of one event one american event and then joe will credit me with saying like hey what if those two people were women and so he's like i love that idea and he went with it and then um fast forward he's written the script and we send it out to people and we had gone out to a couple of people and we sent it to jamie Lee curtis and she's like i love it i'm on board they talked about it and um we had her we cast her in like february of 2017 2017 no uh yes I, I get my 100% get my dates wrong. Um, we shot the summer of 2017. We finished it that fall. And then we started submitting to festivals. We did not really get much festival love. But we did have a screening in New York um, kind of at the same time as Tribeca. Mm-hmm. We brought in a really fascinating panel of women in politics. Uh, Wendy Sherman, who was the former undersecretary for under Obama, um, Diane Allen, a former state senator from New Jersey, Tara Dardell, who's a um, political consultant, and then Kelly Dittmar, who's with the um, Center for American Women in Politics. And they looked at it through the lens of like themselves and other women being in politics. And they, it, we had this fascinating discussion, and that kind of led over the next couple months to IFC picking it up and offering us this limited theatrical release, and then doing this type of release is called a day of date so you release in select theaters but then you also are available on all the platforms you mentioned mm-hmm. at this on the same day which has some challenges with it sure because the big generally the big cinemas won't take that um they won't take a film that is released that way but then it's sort of the i think this is one of the parts of the industry that's sort of like the wild wild west all these distribution patterns are changing and getting turned upside down i think day of date may be day and date may become more standard yeah as we're we seeing forward. we're seeing that ver- in uh more common big budget things as well i know a great recent example would be a deal deals that netflix made with paramount uh regarding movies like the cloverfield paradox and right. also annihilation and that was granted limited to the international streaming rights but uh i believe it was 
for Annihilation, which is one of the my favorite movies of 2018. That was uh, about 17 days, so a little over two weeks. Um, had its regular run in the U.S., had the streaming in internationally, and frankly, I'd be willing to wager that the clo- the streaming model um, might have helped the film a little bit more in terms of getting eyeballs watching it, because Annihilation was a movie that didn't have a lot of i don't know broad appeal it's you know yeah. a very cerebral uh very high concept science fiction film granted it does have a star natalie portman not unlike an acceptable loss having jamie lee but um people are just like okay what am i watching here and uh when you have the barrier of saying oh i have to go to the theater i have to pay x amount of dollars and i have to get my popcorn and i have to do this right it seems like it can be like oh maybe i'll just pass on it which we don't want it to do because annihilation like an acceptable loss is a very good watch um we want these movies to be seen so if you can entice them with like you can literally stay at your home press two buttons on your on your tv and you're watching jamie lee curtis give a fierce performance yeah. as a cutthroat politician you've sold me on that honestly it's concerning honestly how how frightening she is in that in that movie yeah <laughs> i'm glad she wanted to get on board i mean what's it like sending a script out to someone of of that caliber well, it's really, you know, it was it was a fascinating experience because we went to a local um, casting director. You know, we're based in Chicago, despite Joe, all the TV shows he's done and stuff like that. We've always lived in Evanston and we've always wanted to work in Chicago. And so we went, but it's the way that you do it, like in the real world, unless you're like, you know, Ron Howard or Steven Spielberg, sure. is you um, get a casting director and then they get coverage of the film and then it goes out to all the big agencies WME and CAA and stuff like that and then they they will send you back a list of people who are available and then you kind of do this mix and match and go oh one from column A one from column B these people this is the window we had a very distinct window of when we could shoot because of Joe's production schedule on television shows right so we we were like we need we can't go like oh we'll wait for this actress because we had to sort of be in this window and um so we so that way it's just kind of like putting a jigsaw puzzle together and you're like then you start at the top of your list and you send it out they get about two weeks to read it and then they come back and sometimes they'll tell you why they pass and sometimes they won't um and then you just keep going and you're you're always just in every stage of production you're sort of like okay is anyone going to read it is anyone going to say yes to be in it now are we going to be able to raise the money are we going to be able to raise all the money are we going to pay for be able to pay you know yeah so when she said yes that was like big like a big hurdle but then we still had to cast um libby and we knew we wanted there to be diversity like we really wanted the film to look like the world we moved through so we didn't we were very specific about like if rachel ended up being a woman of color then we wanted libby to be um a different race Mm -hmm. so that there is some just like representation yeah and just that it looks more like the world that we move that we move through right i think that it can i can i ask you i don't know if this is an overly like personal question or something but you mentioned that this is this is this the second film that you've made with your husband as a as a filmmaking team we yeah we did a film in 1993 and then we did this film we did another film that he wrote and i produced and another friend of ours directed so 
and you th- that was in 1993 you said so mm-hmm. that was when i was born actually that yes, was the year both that of i was us, born. actually so <laughs> i'll I, be 60 in june you guys <laughs> what is it like um having a, a partner that while you guys obviously have your own careers that like he obviously is in tv and, and you have the, your other pursuits and everything what is it like coming together at the end of the day and being like let's work on a passion project and, and make a film that just so happens to have jamie lee curtis in it it's really i mean most of the time it's really fun most most of some night, sometimes there's the dark night of the soul when you're like, maybe something happens and you just have this knot in the pit of your stomach when you're like, like maybe you, like the money isn't there. We had an investor drop out and that then I, that's me and I'm like, oh my gosh, are we going to be on the hook for all this money? Or he might see some footage or see as part of a performance that he's not and he's like, oh, did, but most of the time we're. I'm like literally the president of the Joe Chappelle fan club. I think I think he might be the president of the Colin Griffin fan club. <laughs> he we, might be. There's well, too many people to name. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but we really like each other, and I and we both think that we're closer now after making this movie than you know. It maybe it helps that like he's done a lot of TV shows where he's lived in other cities, and we've had like time apart. But we're really collaborators, and we share this very distinct vision of what film should be. And we love Chicago. We we want to make more movies in Chicago. We want to. We just think we have amazing actors and crew people, and you know, we we just it's sort of a shared passion. Huh. And and you guys both come from uh, you know this filmmaking background. Uh, you mentioned off mic that you both graduated with MFAs from Northwestern in mm-hmm. film. Yep. And you both have, I'm guessing, your own ideas about what you what you want your careers to look like and the things you want to work on. So it seems to me that when those things can overlap, that's going to create a really interesting product. You've got two well-versed filmmakers if you can get them together whether that's in marriage or in filmmaking i think that's going to create something really special and uh when it comes to an acceptable loss um watching this you know there's a lot of political thrillers out there it's it's a very well-worn genre and i like it generally i like watching political thrillers but sometimes it gets stale because it does fall into the tropes of i'm watching you know to gen- generally two white men right. uh, yep. argue about the nature of power mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff. So it was really fascinating to watch these two women get together and uh, basically pass the Bechdel test and uh, have real conversations about real big questions that women are facing in the in the political sphere. One of the things that I really enjoyed was um, this sort of focus on uh libby's femaleness in the sense that like she's got this stalker and that seems like something that would really happen is that uh this other character martin is stalking libby not just because she's a figure of political controversy but I don't know. It feels like he he thinks he can get away with it because she's a woman. I don't know and, if there's... Do you think there's any validity And maybe that? because she's like a political pariah as yeah. well, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you just can imagine like what, you know, somebody like Condoleezza Rice or, um, yeah. you know, someone like that experiences. And we... There's so many things in the film that some of them are absolutely deliberate. Like this, you know, because... 
Joe loves genre pictures. And so we've always been sort of fascinated with the idea of kind of subverting genres. So you think it's one kind of a thing, and then maybe it evolves into something else. And like the language can change. And if you're not like too concerned about absolutely being spoon fed every trope that, you know, like it did does kind of start sort of slow with this little stalkery thing, but that's not really, you find out that's not really what the movie's about. No, And um, I think the, there's things in there that when even when he wrote it never like there's a scene um where she's having a dinner she's having a conversation with a guy at a cocktail party and it's sort of like it seems like joe wrote it in answer to the me too movement but it was he wrote it like three you know like is that the question when he's asking her about the the things in her house yeah when i was watching that i was like only a man would ask that to a woman these i was just thinking like like, you would only ask these questions like oh you moved into a new house to get lonely yeah what do you sleep on yeah Yeah. and it's really it's really slimy and and like and and uh, you know we it like the way the world has moved like when joe wrote this he thought this is kind of implausible like when i'm not i don't want to do spoiler alerts but then Trump got elected, and now we're sort of like, this is not really that outlandish at all. In no, some ways, no, no. like, even this week, there's been, like, two or three articles about, you know, what's happening with nuclear weapons. And yeah, it's, I, like, kind of um, – so it sort of touches all those things. I'm sorry. I don't even know if I answered your question. Of like, no, it's – I mean, because – a lot of it is, you know, it's having a film that has uh, two female leads like this speaking in a way that female leads don't often get to in this genre of movie, really in any sort of movie. I think um, we have to be careful not to focus too much on that insofar as that it's like it's not an oddity because it shouldn't be an oddity. Correct. This should be the type of movie that we see more often and go and enjoy more often. And frankly, the conversations of power and unilateral uh, military action is really what's sal- super salient about this movie. Right. I think even the, the like one, uh, a friend of mine said one of the things I liked about it is that their womanness or being women had nothing to do with the film yes it's just that they happen to be female actors and we even had before we you know final finalize the cast people were like were you sure you don't want to on on all levels of the industry are you sure you don't want to make one of them a man are you sure you don't want (laughs) to like you know before trump got elected some people were concerned that like with if uh jamie was such a villain oh it's just going to reflect poorly on hillary when she becomes president (laughs) and and i was always like Everybody remember Lady Macbeth? Like, we want, yes. like, women women actors don't get to do, you know, unless they get to do the full spectrum of emotions and complex, nuanced, flawed characters, they're not really getting to act at the, uh, 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 in the same level as men. So yeah, let them be. Let them be not one notice. You know, they they can be more than just a girlfriend or a wife or a mother. And it's a shame to say it, but I honestly, the fact that you casted two women, it really opens up opportunity for subversion of expectation, right? Because you can play it in a way where they're not being victims because of their womanness their, or femininity. They're, they're victims because of the choices that they made, which is, yeah, like you, like you guys have both said, it's within the realm of political thrillers and overwhelmingly white male narratives. I, I don't know that there is a another political political thriller where both leads are women yeah. where the or i shouldn't say where the protagonist and the antagonist are women right yeah and i love i love the uh i love this i love jamie lee i'm <laughs> sorry it's so yeah. it's so good because it's 
it's strangely prescient because you guys started working on this before Trump got elected and it takes on a certain meaning now watching it. But I think there's something specifically Bush era about a lot of this, especially yeah. uh, Jamie's Jamie Lee's like dick cheney yeah, exactly i couldn't help i was like wow she did a better dick cheney than christian bale jamie lee cheney <laughs> jamie, jamie lee cheney cheney lee curtis <laughs> and um i just you can see that she's really reveling in the ability to play a villain that does have a certain ideological point but it's just specifically so militaristic yeah. and yes I and jamie her. does not think that she's a villain she thinks she's she she thinks that Rachel is a person who is keeping her country safe. Yeah. No. And she is doing what she is supposed to do, which is a is the crux of the conversations, I think, between, you know, different types of people that have different worldviews. Like, how do we keep ourselves safe? Is it with military? Is it with, you know, diplomacy? Is it with building bridges? What right. What's the answer? Mm-hmm. And she's, she is... She's, she doesn't think she's a villain. No, she's, she's doing a, exactly what she needs to do. She's rooted she's in her she's perspective. Very com- she's very comfortable with what with her actions. And I also think that it's it, she's painted in such a way where like she's a hard worker. You know, like in that scene in the war room after the whole uh, I don't want to no spoilers obviously, yeah. but after the decision was made, right? Mm-hmm. She stays there and she's typing, and there's mm-hmm. that guy that's just sort of like looking at her with this uh, like unbelievable, like you know, he's astounded that she's got the will to carry something out, sure, and sure, she's sure. just typing away. Yep, she's prepping the media Getting stuff done yeah. you know checking yeah. things off her and the list. president turns on a football game yeah <laughs> that really that that when that i hurt. won my third championship at texas <laughs> yeah. like, i i was like that was it it was very darkly comic in a way that's just uh really kind of hurt i was like man i bet that kind of happens a lot like people make you know life ending decisions like yeah we're gonna throw a drone over this syrian yeah over syria and like we're i threw do that 30 yard pass yeah it's it's disturbing no. And yet, and yet, comic in a way mm-hmm. because that's the only way you can deal with it is just like, well, you've got to have a little bit of a laugh at someone's expense while well, you're still dealing with the fact that uh, there's people at the top echelon of this country making unilateral military decisions that could completely uh, wipe people off the map, destabilize entire countries, and that's really that's really why I took away from this movie. And we've talked a lot about Jamie Lee. I don't want to take away from Tika Sumter as Libby who plays this role with an incredible level of trauma an incredible level of uh poise as well mixed together where you can see where she's trying to put on like i need to be the strongest version of me i have to be this accomplished political figure and at the same time she's sleeping with a with a gun underneath her pillow and um She's it's, no dummy. Yeah, no, not at all. Uh, tell us about finding Tika and getting her involved. Well, that was uh, really uh, like sort of like, you know, these things happen. But uh, we had originally, Olivia uh, Munn had accepted that role. And she was uh, delayed. Uh, I think she was working on Predator. And oh. the, the shoot went long. Yeah. And it was a hard shoot. And she didn't have um, a relationship with Joe at all. And so um, I think it was... I, I'm prob- this is probably like an expose right now. You guys are getting an exclusive. <laughs> well, thank you. Appreciate so, it. So, yeah. So, um, uh, Olivia had to bow out, and she bowed out like three weeks before, maybe two weeks before. Oof. And so, we um, went out looking, and, you know, then we were sort of like under a gun, and Tika is 
amazing. Like she read the script. She said she wanted to do it. She was working on um, her last season, I think, with the haves and the have-nots with Tyler Perry. Okay. So she came up to Chicago on a Saturday, and she did like all her wardrobe fitting. She had a ten-month-old. Her her she has a child, but her child was ten months old at the time. Oh my god! So she goes back to Atlanta on Saturday, shoots Monday and Tuesday, finishes the season. Tuesday night flies back to Chicago, starts shooting for seven weeks on acceptable loss Wednesday morning. So that's incredible. It's yeah. really incredible, and she did such. I mean, I think she's just um, she's haunted, and she just that's the quality we wanted. Right, we wanted that. And I think she and and dignified and intelligent and just she's trying to deal with the repercussions of her actions. And she's got an amazing amount of range just in not just in an acceptable loss, but also in her previous work. I mean, things from Ride Along with Ice Cube and Kevin Hart to, you know, we she's in The Old Man, The Gun. She was in Southside with you, Uh, as you mentioned, the haves and the haves nots, which Tyler Perry often expects his his actors to do quite a range of emotions ranging from slapstick comedy to some really hard stuff so i i mean she just slides into this role mm-hmm. with so it, it seems so little effort i i'm guessing she had to put a lot of effort into it as you mentioned that schedule is brutal yeah brutal. in the in the um the what you described that situation where olivia munn dropped out a few weeks before i mean that's like one of those dark night of the soul situations right and you thrown into a situation where you could have had an actor that could have just phoned it in right but instead you get her coming in flying in out of atlanta at at working four days a week on a paisley schedule being a mom and everything and she's got all of these little synchronicities in her performance like the way that she throws her voice in certain scenes particularly the scene in the kitchen struck out stuck out to me where the man is drunk and accusing her and she you know and then there's the um, emotional fallout afterwards where she goes home i was really struck by that and, and to hear you say that she was like a th- three week you know before shoot add-on right. is and unbelievable I, and I, it's nothing against olivia because i'm sure olivia no. would have done a great job sure too. sure, sure. It, it, and it, it, to me i just think of it i think of it as like it's like a happy such a happy for us accident because i feel like she was she just was the role and i think she um she i i just i don't know i'm sort of speechless with her performance because i think it's so beautiful yeah as a producer i mean this is how things go you have to roll with the punches we've talked to numerous guests that say a lot of filmmaking happens on accident um as much as there is a lot of planning as much as there has to be a lot of uh focus put into the filmmaking process it's still a very artistic process whether you are on camera or off camera where uh things are just going to happen um you were an extremely accomplished producer i i was hoping you could give us an insight into how you define your role as a producer because it can it's a little bit amorphous some people do more of this more of that but when you start working on a film as a producer what's how do you get started well, I, I feel like um, this project was a passion project. Joe and I just wanted to work together again. And mm-hmm. so we had been looking for the right project. I, I We have three kids, and I kind of took a little backseat. And I actually directed my first feature at 53, and it was a sort of a hybrid horror psychological drama. And then I did a mockumentary about fake boy bands. So I kind of <laughs> yeah. like do a spectrum of things. Um but I sort of wear two hats in this film. My one hat was that I had to raise 
the money. But we had an amazing executive producer, Candy Strait, who we met through IFP Chicago. She brought her film Equity here, and I met her. And she is a big um, – she's very passionate about women in politics. And someone said, what What are you looking for? What's your next project? And she said, I want to find something where I've got two women um, politicians. And um, my colleague that I was with um, said – her eyes just got really big and there candy was like do you have a political thriller with two women and i'm like actually we do and so <laughs> blessings we sent abound it, yeah oh, let me, we ch- let me check her, the old yeah, bag here <laughs> we sent it to her a couple weeks later she loved it and and she d- she raised a lot of the money and i raised a lot of the money but my my preferred place to be is what i would call a creative producer and I feel like a creative producer is the one that kind of gathers all the people together. So you put together the cast, the produ- the director, the cinematographer, the department heads, like the key department right. heads. You make this kind of package that you're happy with and you go, I feel like this film can be made for this kind of money with this group of people. And then I feel like my job is to create this safe space for them to do their best work in. That's the best way I can describe it. So I... Have I have like another feature I'm working on called Kindred? That's a micro budget film that's we're shooting with a local director Emily Barber and uh, former Chicagoan Emily Bennett, who's the actor writer, and we're going to shoot it in Montana. That it's about kind of the backdrop is the opioid crisis, and that will be the same kind of thing. I'll raise the money, but it's a much tinier amount of money, and we'll I'll create a safe space for those people to work together do you find it uh which do you prefer small budgets or big budgets well i've never had a big budget or at least bigger budget yeah i think you know one of the things i think that people think about an acceptable loss is that we had because of jamie because of tika because of joe that we it was a big budget we i mean compared to some films it seemed probably seems like a lot of money but it was less than what you have for like a regular tv show um quite a bit less actually um so i've never had like um just endless amounts of money. Sure, I sure. I actually think big budget movies, like I think I read something somewhere where somebody was like, yeah, we only got like $80 million to do this movie. <laughs> I kind of think that that's immoral. And yeah. There's a part of me that thinks, I mean, I guess... If someone's listening out there and they want to give me $20 million for the movie, I'm happy to take we, it. Our listeners have deep pockets. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Go, guys. But I think that um, I just – we were very – for on an acceptable loss, we um, hired union crew. Everybody was – you know, no no favors, nobody's working for $25 a day. And I think at this point with Joe and I where we are in our career, it would be kind of like wrong for us to – look at like a young person that wants to get into the business and be like, Hey, will you do this? Will you work for us for three weeks for free? So I, I, but I think a sweet spot is like the, um, for movies is to me is like the three to $10 million range. Sure. But I think the industry doesn't really like that. They want bigger budgets because they really want to make a lot of money, which is weird because some of the most successful pictures of the last few years have been done on pretty small budgets. Sure. I mean, Moonlight, just yeah, yeah, Moonlight, Get, Get Out, Out. Yep. was that was made for like what five million bucks? Yeah, which is four. In the, yeah, four. I mean, in the world of Hollywood, that's chump change. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. like that's an executive just like yeah, whatever. Like here's five million dollars, Jordan Peele, go, go make, make your little yeah. movie. Yeah. So and and I like what you're saying about bringing people in and paying them, you know, making sure there's no favors. It's you're going to get what living wage, owed. living yeah. wage, because it creates 
an accessibility for people to get into it. I mean, you, you've pulled from local talent. Uh, when I was watching an acceptable loss, one of the first things I noticed was like, Hey, is that Rashad Hall? Is it from yeah. rendezvous in Chicago? Yeah. I was so excited. 87% of our cast are Chicago actors. Okay. That's beautiful because it just, it makes things livable. It makes things accessible. It gives people, I don't know, a, a, an ability to live a dream. To, 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 to practice work. their craft. Yes. Yeah. This yeah. is what they want to do. You yeah. mentioned probably one of your big goals as a producer is you wanted to create like a safe space for people to work in. Mm-hmm. Have you worked on shoots where that, I guess, where where did that come from? You know, like what is I, the I importance of that? I don't mean even safe, like safe, like, oh, I feel like someone's going to. No, like, of course, you, but, but like but a good like, work environment. I, right? I think that it's, it's so that you don't have, like, I think there is a lot of talk about like auteurs and the whole idea of like a vision i don't know if you guys saw the documentary harold and lillian but it's about harold michelson and lillian michelson and he was a storyboard artist and she was a researcher he drew frames for like um hitchcock and you know the ten commandments and stuff like that okay and then you look at you look at the film and you start scratching your head and you go okay those iconic images are they really hitchcock's or are they harold's and i don't know the answer that question but i think film is a collaborative art form and so if you have a great cinematographer like our cinematographer was a woman which was really important to us i think three percent of movies are shot by women we dan clancy was our production designer he's an amazing guy our ad jimmy giovanetti he's been he worked on home alone you these are people that have years and years of experience and so you want to listen to them you want you don't want to create a world where someone is going to get chewed out because they come up with a suggestion or get or even just get ignored or marginalized i think that that happens a lot on big movies and i think that sense like like you're practicing your craft you're bringing what you bring to the table and for people to dismiss it or not sort of listen to your view i think is it you'll you'll i think you'll lose something in the end sure why i do don't know th- if that answers why do you no, think we did, got yeah. to that point why do i mean i think a lot of it i i spend a lot of time looking at specifically i'm fascinated by the new hollywood movement as many people are because we especially in american culture tend to cherry pick out of that era as some of the best american films you know typical ones like the godfather i'm taxi walking driver. here yeah. <laughs> midnight cowboy <laughs> uh, taxi driver <laughs> taxi driver i mean and these are great films yeah. but they did tend to reinforce this idea of the auteur of the singular vision uh perhaps none more controversial than george lucas people really look at him as like what happens when you allow a single person to be the supreme arbiter of an idea of a story of a franchise i was just curious in in your opinion how do you think we got to that point and are we can we get away from it are we getting away from it in film I don't think we're getting away from it because I think we're already. Oh, so this is where I'm not going to be able to say their names. I'll, uh, but like redacted, um, <laughs> Lars von Trier. I mean, like who's the guy that directed the favorite? Oh, Lars Lothman. Okay, yeah. so like those guys like come out, make this big hit, big splash, very creative, and then, and I think that this happens is like you make one big hit, critical hit, and from then on, you're going to get a critical blessing. Yep. Um, it doesn't matter what, I mean, I love Scorsese. Taxi Driver, one of my favorite movies sure. of all time. There's been a few movies of his that have come out lately that I haven't really thought were, you know, the same level of just like, you know, awe-inspiring. And 
and I, so I think it's I think it's two things. I think it's one is the idea that one person, everything they make, no matter what they make, is going to be brilliant, or every performance they do, or every you know composer composition that they write. And then the other side of it is the whole concept of an auteur to me, because. 100, 200 people work on a movie and some things happen just by accident. Someone's standing there and they go, hey, Joe, what do you think about this? And if Joe's open, he'll go like, that's great. Let's do that. And then it might end up being, there's one moment in An Acceptable Loss where we showed it at the Chicago Film Festival and it was a very diverse, I don't want to give it away, so I don't know how I can finish describing this, but it was a very diverse audience and the there's a couple places in the movie where people jump or get startled or something like that. And this moment was um, a person, was this diverse audience gasping that something happened to a person, a brown-skinned person. Yeah. And it, was we sort of but we because we're white people we couldn't see that that was going to resonate sure if that makes sense yeah no absolutely i mean that's that's fairly common in film and uh i think that's why it's important to go see movies in an audience that might that that might be more diverse i i mean I don't know. I don't know how this is going to sound, but I don't know. I saw Get Out with a mostly black audience, yeah. and I was like, "We I, saw it together. We I saw believe. it together." Yeah, mostly black audience. I literally could not imagine watching that movie any other way because it gives you a, a context. It it says, you know, it gives you an ability to understand the horror of this movie. You're not watching just like a thriller. You're watching a true horror movie that people really live identify. Yeah, yeah, they live it. They identify with it. Um, I wish I had seen Sorry to Bother You with a more a bigger audience. One, because I think people were not as aware of it as a, I would have hoped, but a more diverse audience because as you said, we it's um, we don't have that context just by nature. We grew up right. white. Uh, for me and Connor, we grew up white men and um you know that's that's something that we take with us into the movies and to be able to get out of that i think is important and uh really the object of film it's i, I believe it was roger ebert that once said it's a it's an empathy machine yep gives you the ability to experience someone else's lives or thought processes none of us will ever really know what it was like to uh have to make a unilateral military decision that could killed millions and pe- you know so many people sure but we can sure get into the headspace through tika's performance and understand the villainy of it through jamie lee's performance uh i wanted to bring up again that this film is now available to stream you can rent it on amazon itunes pretty much anywhere that you get uh your your movies and it's also going to be playing at the midwest independent film festival that's going to be tomorrow from when you're listening to this you're listening hopefully listening on a monday on a monday <laughs> yeah this is going to be tomorrow at uh first tuesdays through the midwest independent film festival um so get out and see it connor i believe you seem like you want to say something oh no i was i was just uh preparing myself for to breathe <laughs> <laughs> i think we all are sometimes watching this movie i had to prepare myself to be like i know I'm, I'm okay just, i'm thinking about that war room scene man it, it's, it's, it's sticking with me yeah i get if i had to and i'm not this type of person that is just like this is the scene this is the best scene but I, if i had to pick uh one of the key scenes for me and i think one that people are really going to enjoy it's getting into the war room and seeing 
uh how this plays out because it's it, it's devastating it's very real it's, as i said it's very prescient um i, I and i want to cap it off here with what's next for you um i mean you mentioned that you well, have kindred coming up i have kindred coming out joe just finished the, joe would be here except that he is flying home he just finished godfather of harlem which is an epics is epics epics yeah epics, um, yeah TV show with Forrest Whitaker, Vincent D'Onofrio, Giancarlo Esposito. Oh, I love that guy. Wow. Shot in New York with uh, the true story of Bumpy Johnson, who was a African American gangster in the early 1960s. So he just wrapped. He just wrapped shooting. He's got a few more weeks of editorial. Naturally, um, yeah. And then we'll see. We've got a couple. He's got a great uh, political thriller TV show that we'd love to get going. We just, you know, we need time to write and develop so well there's just so there's so much time and so much talent to pull from uh, especially in chicago oh, especially yep. in chicago thank you so much colleen absolutely uh, we really appreciate it. it uh again this is colleen griffin fantastic filmmaker and producer the film is an acceptable loss watch it now you got time tonight i'm sure you do just give it it's it's under two hours it's a tight what 145 145 yeah it's tight it moves quickly and i think you're going to really love these performances uh thank you so much everybody for joining us for another week of chicago film talk uh you know we're get oh we've uh gonna remind you about we've we're gonna be at the gene Siskel film center uh on, on saturday no friday. friday friday february 8th yep uh we're going to be doing the introduction and q a for rendezvous in chicago so get your tickets now uh, we love that we love rendezvous in chicago um so many great performances and also directed by michael glover smith friend of the show and produced by uh lane marine williams of women of the now women of the now also worked on the film so if you want to support local film you got plenty to do this week you got an acceptable loss on tuesday come on you got <laughs> rendezvous on friday come on come on, come on. let's That's go it. all right thank you again colleen this sure. has been no coast cinema here on wgm plus we are your guide to cinema here in the city of chicago i am tom hush and i'm connor cornelius and we'll see you all next week <laughs>